0: Jesus, have you seen the state of you? Mate, 12th of April, get that haircut booked.
1: Running with Jake, the podcast. On this episode. My
2: first international marathon was in Poland. The drink stations were every 5K and they had water and they had
1: cold sweet tea. Running with Jake, the podcast. Because every runner needs the occasional plot. And here's your host, Jake Lowe.
0: The show that doesn't need a government laid-out roadmap to deliver your weekly dose of running motivation. This is the Running Jake podcast. Great to have you company once again. We're going to lift you up, fire you up. We're not going to physically lift you up. I mean, we're not, we're not going to pick you up. That's not what we're going to do. But we're going to we're going to lift your spirits. You know what I mean? If you're a regular listener to the show, you know the drill by now. We're all about energy, motivation, and bringing you some incredible guests. And today. Is no different. Now, I I do say that I'm excited every single episode about the guests that we have on. I don't just say that. I'm genuinely excited about the people we have on our show. But today today we have an exceptional guest this is a running coach whose training plans I actually followed I followed his training plans before I was a coach so wow wow super inspirational he won the London Marathon in 1983. Uh, I just
1: I can't wait to pick his brains about this Blimey. this is gonna be awesome How do you do that How do you what was his time just out of interest on the London Marathon 1983 two hours and nine minutes. That's insane. He was in a real hurry, wasn't he?
0: What was he doing? I also believe he had a proper old-school approach as well. You know, drinking beer, fueling it with Mars Mm. bars, you know, none of these carbon-plated shoes. So I'm really interested to get his old-school mentality, attitude, training approach... Uh, that it took him to win the 1983
1: London Marathon. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I really, I really am. Uh, right now, though, you're um, you're flogging t-shirts, aren't you? I've seen this on your your Facebook. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. That you're, <laughs> you're flogging stuff. It's like you know. I appreciate that we're in lockdown, and you know, people are making money in extra ways, and you know, we have to diversify, or as people some say, some people say on LinkedIn, we're having to pivot. Um, <laughs> and I've seen that you're uh, you're flogging stuff out the boot of your car. Got, That's good. I've That's got, good. I've got one on now, That's Lord. Good. I've got one on now. Look, I'm not flogging
0: t shirts at the back of my car. Okay, this is a very credible show. We have listeners <laughs> from know. all around the globe. I, I don't want them thinking that the host, yeah, you know that guy that just flogs t shirts at the back of his car. That is not true. That is not true. We've all got to diversify, mate. But this is a new brand that I've, I've created. This was born uh, last year, actually, which is Forte by Running with Jake. This started last year, and actually over a holiday uh, in Italy. That's where the idea came from. And forte, in Italian, means strong. It is
1: pretty special, to be fair. And it was only teasing about the back of the car thing. <laughs> Although you'd probably sell more if you did flog-, flog about the back of a car to market. But um, tell us about it then. So you went to Italy, and, and it's uh, and, and it's to do with Marty's family and everything. And you had this vision, and now, now you're flogging T-shirts. <laughs> so this...
0: Interestingly, for, for a long time now, I've had people message me saying, oh, have you got T-shirts available? You know, fair enough. I get that. Mm. And it's great. You know, people that follow me on the social media and stuff. And I have T-shirts for my performance community. So the, the guys and girls that I look after in my, my coaching service, we, we have T-shirts as part of like the, the team, as it were. But I didn't have T-shirts that were available kind of to, to, to everybody. And I, I didn't just want to produce, oh, here's some T-shirts, you know, running with Jaycon kind of thing. So it was always in the back of my mind. And then last year, obviously a massively challenging year for, for all of us, 2020, for different reasons, you know, we, we, were, we were affected by COVID and the situation. And I was on holiday. I was actually on holiday in Kefalonia with Martina's parents and my girlfriend, who's Italian, her parents and uh, a family friend over there. And we were all talking. And you know how when you're on holiday, you're relaxed, you're chilling and you kind of you just you become creative things happen ideas are born because you're in that kind of creative space where you haven't got the pressures of i guess work and kind of regular life and that's when i came up with the idea of forte by running with jake so forte in italian means strong and the brand is all about the internal strength so not just you know when we run we often think about the physical fitness so we want to improve our pace we want to improve our times but what happens when things don't go your way? You know when you can't be bothered to run after a long day. I know that happens to you, it certainly happens to me, Pete. Oh yeah. Or when you're faced with challenges, homeschooling, you've you've suddenly that time that you had to run, you have no longer got that time. How do you adapt and adjust and what impact does that have on your, your mental well being? And you know, we all face challenges. Some are similar, some are different, and it's how we overcome that. It's the strength inside, how strong you are inside that really counts. And I feel so strongly about this, and that's where the idea came from. So so, yeah, that's exactly what the, the brand represents, that internal strength. You know, strong is already inside, but sometimes we just need to be reminded. So every time I wear this T-shirt, and I'm, I I just love it, I feel so proud to wear this, and every time I go out and run, it reminds me that I do have the strength to overcome, whether it's the wind that I'm battling at the moment or whether I'm on mile seven, of a of a potential 50 mile run and I'm thinking oh my gosh how am I going to get to 50 miles it's just that little reminder you know and it never leaves never leaves me so I, I love it super passionate about it
1: do you know what I, I was joking about flogging t-shirts because <laughs> you know essentially you are it, it is a brand and it is it is very nice and it looks great as well that's the most imp- important thing to cool, me cool isn't it you know yeah it, rep- it, it represents that stuff and that's really important and, and like you say I think you know because I've heard you say that about you know, str- strong is always inside. When you put that on, it's almost like, you know, putting a sticker on you and going, oh, yeah, God, I remember that. Yeah. Just at that important moment where you are uh, stepping out the door, uh, you know, against the odds sometimes. And is that not you? That's you on there, isn't it? That's you on the O. Yeah. So that is actually me, which was from a marathon. I
0: believe that was Abingdon Marathon when I was, I was pacing Martina. So, yeah. So I've got loads of ideas for different products in the future, but at the moment we've launched it with the long-sleeve T-shirts, as you can see, which is technical fabric, so great for running in, obviously, and super comfortable. And we've got some wind buffs as well, which are cool. So you can use these in different ways. You can wear them around your forehead. You can wear them over your head. is almost like a wind-stopper kind of hat. It's school cap. You can wear it around your neck. So multi-purpose, so really, really cool. We'll link mm. in the show notes, actually, so if people listen to this do want to check them out. I'm not selling them from the boot of my car, can I just add. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I am not doing not, that. you not, I know. You I won't know. see me on you're, you're, Facebook at the <laughs> other corner of the road with the boot of my car open selling these T-shirts. You won't see that. But if you do want to check out what Forte is all about and have a look at the T-shirts, it is runningwithjake.com forward slash gear. You can check them out. And I will link it in the show notes page as well, which is runningwithjake.com forward slash plod Cast Pete, I'm going to get you on.
1: What size, mate? What size? Um, um I think I'm um, XXXL. I'd say. I've got to get these little poppies in there, haven't I? You're not doing yourself justice. You get you and your family in an XXXL. So definitely not flogging your t-shirts from the back of a car, just from a website. <laughs> <laughs> There's
0: a difference. It's not the same thing. I hate the word flog.
1: For the show notes and video content, go to runningwithjake.com forward slash podcast. Running with Jake, the podcast.
0: I'm super excited to introduce today's guest on the show. We're we're all set up now. We we had a few issues technically getting set up. We've all got our cups of tea on the go. We're chilled out and we're ready to talk running. We've got none other than Mike Grattan on. My favourite running coach, founder of 209events.com, fitness holidays and training camps, and winner of the 1983 London Marathon in a staggering two hours and nine minutes. Mike, are you, st- are you still 14th on the all-time UK list?
2: Um, 14th or 15th? I don't know if Mo Farah was already in it or not, but I think it's 14th, yeah. Oh. Yeah
0: flipping Mo Farah
2: he's always
1: getting in everyone's way isn't he yeah I know
2: yeah I think he was already there so I think I am still the 14th fastest so that's that's pretty good pretty good over 40 years almost
0: it blows my mind and, and there's so many questions I've got for you Mike and I want to respect your time here you were here all day you were here all week my friend I mean did you enjoy talking about the London Marathon that 1983 I mean it was many years ago now but what what just an awesome memory you created do you enjoy kind of reliving it
2: Yeah, I do, actually, because you get to a point in your life when you stop trying to do it again, and then you realise that that day back in London, in my case, was the day. And uh, it becomes the pinnacle of your career. It's what you're remembered for. And um, there was something about running Sub-210, running a 209. Hence, that's why I call the company 209. It's got a nice ring to it. So uh, having done it, it, it was kind of the rest of my running career and coaching life and stuff all all revolved around it in the end
0: kind of like a platform for you i guess in many respects Then is that is that what you're saying kind of took you into new places as it were from, from that achievement
2: I, I was an artist as well and at some point um i got uh, a very high grade in in my a-level arts um, i was an art teacher for two years uh and my running career from being english course champion that kind of stuff and then developing as a marathon runner and the art career kind of were going in parallel. So at some point I had to decide whether I took a career in art or in sport. And I'm also colourblind. So I applied for Brighton College of Art where Steve Ovette was. I, I didn't know that at the time, but Steve Ovette was there. And uh, one of the one of the tests on the application form was, are you Colorblind? So I ticked, yes. And... <laughs> Because I wanted to do um, graphic art and I had to have colour vision. So it just dis- it disbarred me from doing art as a subject. So I did a teaching degree where I did art and PE uh, as, as um, a, a dual kind of thing. So I started teaching art for two years, didn't really enjoy it so I switched to PE for two years and then I won the under Marathon and that was the end of teaching. Sport was becoming professional. I was looking at coaching camps, going to New York Marathon, et cetera. So, so the running took off and um, I don't regret never becoming an artist. It's still there, uh, but, but really my art teacher always said, you know, you're gonna waste your life running around in circles. But I really didn't.
1: <laughs> no, not at all. To be fair, your, um, your colour blindness really worked worked out for you. I mean, I wouldn't suggest you yeah. go rewiring too many plugs to no, anytime no. soon. I know, that's <laughs> a real problem. You,
2: you, you can't be an electrician, you can't, um, I think there's a fireman, there's another one you couldn't be. Uh, I also got A-level for architect drawing and I can't be an architect for the same reason. That is colour-coding. Color so it limited my career to teaching PE.
0: So I have to run fast to get a decent life out of it. It blows my mind, not just the, the of course, the time that you finished in and winning the London Marathon back in 1983, but you were, so you were full-time teaching when you mm. were training for the marathon. Oh, absolutely, yeah. For the marathon. Uh, I right, right
2: through, I gave up teaching after winning London because up to 82, um, the sport was entirely amateur. You, you could earn a certain amount of expenses, um, but th- they are expensive, expenses. And they changed the rules initially and they allowed a trust fund. For instance, Nike sponsored me, they gave me $5,000. That money went to the trust fund, which um, UK Athletics, as it is now, or British board, as it was then, held in a bank somewhere. And uh, if you, uh, I don't know, did, did your weekly shopping and it was, let say, 50 quid in those days, I could take the receipt, send it to the UK Athletics, who would then send me or transfer the money back to me. So it wasn't money in my pocket. It was money that I could draw against legitimate expenses. So I couldn't go and pay for my holiday with it or anything. So uh, so you had to have a job. And most people did. Ava Martin worked for Ford. Steve Jones was in the R.E.F. I mean, most of us had some kind of employment until 1984, and the sport went completely open. And uh, really... Um, People like Liz McColgan, Steve Jones, were responsible for putting pressure on organisers to say, look, we need some some salary out of this. And, and then the money changed quite quickly. I did win money from London 83, I won $10,000, which went into the trust fund. And I used that to put down as a deposit on my first house. So there were benefits, but you, re- you really couldn't be just an athlete unless someone like Steve Ovette was always an athlete but he had income from other areas and he lived with his mum And she had a sort of, uh, which is what most people did they had to stay living with their parents Sports Aid Foundation was giving a certain amount of money out to people who were genuine medal prospects, so Daddy Thompson, Steve Ovett. I was never a medal prospect I went to Commonwealth Games, I was chosen very late for the England team and I went there and surprisingly got a bronze medal, no one expected it so uh, I, I was never on that kind of funding, I was always having to get a little bit of expenses here a little bit of expenses there so teaching was where i earned my money
0: and how did you manage your time time something we all i think everybody can use as a bit of a a barrier slash excuse you know what i mean mike all the sure. oh, time the, the day, days ran away with me how did you manage because you must have been putting in some serious time to 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 training
2: yeah that's that's the thing i, I, I think if you are a technical event person let's say a Daddy thompson um, where you're having to learn the techniques of events but actually being a long distance runner it's just time on feet and if you're running at six miles on average and running 120 miles a week there's only 12 hours of training so you split that down it's, it's less than two hours a day so i would literally run five or six miles to school in the morning do my teaching job and then in the evening run up to Invicta running club at university of kent where i trained or run home again um, so it fitted in around what you're doing and that kind of running commute is quite normal and still is quite normal for quite a lot of athletes before they reach the level where they're able to go um, completely as an athlete. Most athletes I know, Stephanie 12 is local to me, she has to work. She does a job for Rushmore Council doing 0-3k for children's schools and all sorts of other bits and pieces. So, uh, so that it's, it's still the way in I think. Some athletes are so good that they all get funded other athletes who, who um, their ability is, is more under the radar still have to work and try and earn a living. And uh,
1: it's a way of it. It's a, it's a tough old life. Yeah, but it's character building at the same time, isn't it? And it makes you realise what you've got when you've got it, when you when you finally reach that you, your, your target that you're going for.
2: Oh, absolutely, yes. I don't think you really kind of register that while you're doing it. Um, I mean, from, from my point of view, from 1979, I did my first marathon. I ran 221. I'd already started teaching by then. So the, the kind of the, the pattern was set and it didn't feel strange to me that I had to fit my training around my job because everybody else more or less, was doing that. Um, and, and it's only now when people say, but what kind of time could you run now under modern circumstances? Uh, and there is no answer to it because you, you don't know. You know You're on your feet eight hours a day or so working and then training around it. You're, you're tired all the time. But I say it's character building, and it's probably you live in your own bubble, your own era, um, and you couldn't change it. And we were all doing
0: the same, so it wasn't unusual. I really love some of the things I'm hearing from you, Mike. Kind of, it, it strikes me as like the attitude as well and acceptance of certain things, embracing things. So, for example, working full time it is what it is you can't change that it's, it's what has to happen and you just make the most of that and you get out and train put the trainers on commit to it and you talk about the amount of hours that people put in and if you're running six minutes per mile it's only x amount of hours per week that you're putting in there whereas some people that would blow their mind but i really like that because i think if we can manage our minds and and kind of accept certain things i think it helps us to To commit to certainly training, I'm talking here, obviously. And and, Hmm, well, it's just three hours a week I'm looking at putting in, or five hours or ten hours, or whatever that number might be to the individual. Two hours twenty-one in your first marathon, man. I mean, you just say it's so (laughs) blase. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. You talk about time on feet, Mike. Is that and this is a term that's heard a lot. And I guess to some degree it depends on how that time is spent on your feet in terms of intensity, are you very much from the school of thought of, look, just long, slow distance and lots of it, kind of volume is is, is king? And I know people are different. You know, people want to shortcut now in, in today, don't they? They want, they want more bang for their buck. They want to put in less time to get the biggest return, which I understand, but it's a marathon. And you need to spend a lot of time. And you think, what's your thoughts on that whole slow distance? Was there a magic training session that worked for you? Just the long, the long run. Yeah, the, the
2: pace of them changed depending on the season and how close to your major race was. So we were very well aware of percentages of speed work needed, um, peaking, um, running through phases. Uh, None of it was new. Um, there was a guy called Dr. David Costill who was a physiologist, worked with Ron Hill in the late 60s and Ron Hill did 2.9 in 1969 so it's uh, uh, even older than my time um, and they did a lot of research on peaking Arthur Lyddiard, um who coached Peter Snell as an 800 metre runner was running 100 miles a week and I very much developed my own training I didn't follow anybody's plan I made it up and there was a lot of trial and error uh, which worked in the end uh, but there were times when I ran really badly as well it wasn't always up it was times when I know in uh, 81 I was aiming at running improving from 216 I'd got to and I thought I could run 212 and I ran up to 140 to 150 miles a week and I lost a fair bit of weight I got too thin and I was extremely fit and my training was amazing but when I got to the end of a marathon I was completely out of steam I would completely used all my reserves up so I dropped it down. It seems like yeah, I dropped it down to 120 miles a week, but it was a significant amount. And uh, it meant I had more energy reserves and I improved to the next level. And I ran the 2.12 in London, then I ran it in the Commonwealth Games, and then the two two nine in London. So there was trial and error getting there, but I broadly used the principles of Emil Zatopek, who used to do high numbers of interval set runs. So I would do 25, 400s, for instance, at a session with 100, 100 jog at 5K pace. Dave Bedford, he was doing 200 miles a week. That's why I got on you know, trying to do 150. I could never have run 200 miles a week. Uh, and, and Arthur Lyddiard, he was coaching um, 800 meter runners up to marathon runners with the same principles of 100, 120 miles a week. 80% of that during the winter running steady Someone like Peter Schnell, who would be training for the Olympic 800, which he won, uh, would then suddenly change to much faster training, much less volume. Uh, But someone like Rod Dixon would go on. He got bronze, I think, in the 5000 at Munich. Went on to win the the New York Marathon in 2-9. All training, basically, with the same principles. So it wasn't unusual. Um, There were some athletes. Seb Coe was a lowish mileage trainer. Um, and from the marathon world Alberto Salazar trained on fairly low mileage now I don't want to be disparaging against Salazar because I don't know what he was doing but if you look at the kind of um, yeah, the, the rap he's got now that um, people are on to him and uh, he was taking Prozac in those days and that sort of stuff it was all a bit dodgy but he was running much less than 100 miles a week according to his diaries he may not have been counting very steady work as part of his training whereas if, if, uh, if I went out and ran five miles at 6.30, it felt very slow. I mean, I was racing at 4.30, so it's uh, considerably slower than my racing speed. Some people would count that as junk miles. Um, I just didn't. I just saw all of that was building and endurance over a period of time. So uh, I, it, I counted every mile apart from warming up and warming down for track sessions. I counted every mile I did, um, whereas I know Sebastian Coe only counted the stuff that was at a high end of, of, of of, of speed, really.
0: With your wealth of experience, do you think, sort of, marathon runners today, you know, on a recreational level, do you think that that slow mileage and running significantly slower than their intended marathon race pace is still fundamental? You know, how slow? How slow would you would you typically advise somebody runs? You know, you hear different things, don't you? One minute to two minutes, and thirty uh, slow up a mile that is, or thirty seconds. What's your What's your feelings on that today?
2: Well, I think most people need to turn the training upside down and do more mileage at the beginning of a training block and speed it up and drop the mileage closer to the race and traditional training schedules have you doing low mileage at the start gradually building up to high mileage just before the race that doesn't give you chance it gives you chance to get good endurance just before the race but not to come to any speed peak so you need to be doing um lots of very easy miles Let, let's say london's in april i don't know if it's not this year but let's say london's in april you're training for that in in December, January, you should be doing most of your two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour runs. And the speed you run them at is not important. But when you get to February, you start to introduce some more interval work and start to do tempos. And then certainly by six weeks before the marathon, you should be running at marathon speed for some part of your long runs. So your body's getting used to A, the endurance, but B, running at speed when you're tired so you know, periodization is what they call it so at the beginning of your period long slow is okay at the end the last six to eight weeks where you're really trying to come to a peak you need to in our case we kept the mileage up because we got super fit but we speeded it all up at the same time so we came to a peak in 83 when i won london uh, in february i did a 10 mile race in Sittingbourne in 48 30 i think i won it and then in March, three weeks before the London Marathon, I did another 10-mile race in Tombridge on a harder course, and I won that again in 4711, so nearly a minute and a half faster, over 10 miles. And and that was due to coming to a peak. Uh, and uh, I knew then that that you know, everything was working, so uh, yeah, that speeding up towards the end of your training rather than trying to build the miles up it, it is... The reverse to what most people see as training now it's long slow stuff but building up so to say you get to be a top athlete by lots of long slow running is not really right um, it's long and slow for part of the season but then quite fast for part of the season so you have to kind of periodise the whole thing so that you you come to a peak at the right time it's a trial and error part of training really it's knowing how quickly you come to a peak and there will be times when athletes Um, don't get it right. And I know Kelly Holmes, different kind of athlete, but uh, she's locally, I lived in Kent, when she was a Tombridge runner, she was in Kent. So as a junior athlete and uh, me as a senior athlete getting into coaching, I looked at what she was doing. Uh, I coached a a young girl um, who was running 1,500, 3,000, Maria Skinner, who doesn't run very much now, but uh, she was beating Kelly Holmes. But I had her running a reasonable mileage at school Kelly Holmes was on low mileage but training very intensely. Uh, and then she joined the army and she improved to be you know, a two minute, 800 metre runner. Looked like she was going to do well in the Olympics. Went off, trained in Mozambique with, with uh, Matola and people like that. Came back, she was injured. She'd overtrained. She'd reached a peak too early. Finally, in Athens, where she got a double gold medal, she got it all right. She got the timing right. She was fit at the right time. She was not injured. So much of it is understanding yourself.
0: I love what you say there, Mike, about turning the training on its head. I I was nodding and smiling as you were saying that. I thought it's just so true. And that whole kind of self-discovery, rather than going to do a marathon and wanting to ace it on your first attempt, which I think is quite typical of certainly recreational sort of level runners, which I am, you know, wanted to Mm. ace my first marathon. And it's such a a learning curve and there's so many things that can go wrong. And we, we speak a lot about mileage here. And it's almost like finding that sweet spot, isn't it, Mike? Because everybody's mm. different. I mean, you, you, you overcooked it in terms of mileage and you, you you were super fit. But then when it came to the race, you didn't have potentially the, the speed endurance or whatever it was to get you through that finish line strong. And, and there, therefore, you had to scale things back a bit. We do make mistakes in training, I think. Do you think it's different for, you know, people listening to this show now, Mike, that are perhaps looking towards their first marathon do you think it's different so we're talking about building that endurance space and then perhaps reducing it and focusing a bit more on the speed to give you that you know pace for the race do you think it's different if if it's somebody's first marathon and they literally just want to get through it because surely if they're just building the mileage up progressively it's going to help them get through the race but they might not achieve that great time in their mind that they want
2: yeah i think that it's, it's a problem if the marathon is their first race more or less and you know, you watch the London Marathon this year, you enter it and then you don't think too much about it and then you start training in January, you have to start on 10 miles a week, build up to 15 miles a week because you can't just go in at a high level. Um, but if, if you've gone through a year of part run and then you've gone up to a half marathon and you've had about three years of training background, then you've got enough fitness to start with long slow. So it depends where you are in the journey. I think if you're, uh, if you're more or less right at the beginning and London you're doing for charity or you've been inspired by the previous London Marathon, realistically, you're not gonna have two or three years to build some background before you do your first marathon. You're gonna do it in six months time. So you've got to start from zero and build up gradually. But the people who are gonna do a better first marathon in m- most cases are those with three or four years of park running, 10K running, half marathon running getting some experience and then during a, a winter, if they join a local running club, um, I did a talk for Fleet Running Club last week. So if someone who typically does park run and joins Fleet Running Club will suddenly find that the club are doing endurance training through January, February time, it's typical club structure. And they'll start fitting into long runs on a Sunday much earlier, but they've, got, yeah, they've gone to the club because they've now got some experience of running. So it, it depends on where, where you are in that journey. Um, one of the unique things about the London Marathon, actually, is the number of first-timers who have... It's sometimes their first and one-only race. They may have done a practice half-marathon just before it. But, uh, and that's because more than half the race is encouraged by charities to run, um, to, to raise money. And it's not about the finishing times. It's about finishing and, and earning whatever they have to earn for, for their charity. Um, if you went to the Paris Marathon, at the front end of the race say, sub-three hours, is much more depth because they don't have a big charity sector. Everything is based out of running clubs. To, to enter a race in France um, or any sport, you have to belong to a club and have a medical at the beginning of the year and get a medical certificate. So it encourages people to actually be long-term in a sport. So most of the people at the front end of the Paris Marathon are good club runners and you get more depth in the Paris Marathon. Um doesn't get the prestige because they don't get the top runners You don't have the budget of the London Marathon but they do have a history of, of fast club runners filling the front of the race and very few people they have a cut off of 5.45 in the Paris Marathon because they're not interested in the charity runner who wants to just get round and and raise their charity buck because it, it's a different USP really for the two races um, much the mm. same most, most places America's getting onto the charity uh, sector bandwagon and there's a lot more charity runners now the boston marathon which is a qualifying race does allow charity runners in they give them um what they call vip spots to various charities who buy the places so the back end of the boston marathon now can be quite slow it can be people doing seven hours whereas before when it was a club only race and you had to run a fast time to qualify the majority of the race was under three and a half hours so yeah there's, there's a subtle change in the way races are set up and it, because the uk is driven by charities more or less um, in terms of the numbers running uh, i think the um the type of training that's done suits people who go and buy a book by runners world every month um because their training schedules are going to go like naught to 5k is going to go naught to the marathon but um, inevitably means starting at a low level and building to a higher level but experienced runners really should start at a high level in terms of endurance and then speed up so uh, then physiologically they'll get more out of it
0: going back to your uh, 1983 London I've got to ask you this question how did you fuel it I'm 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 intrigued to know were you all super gels and things every 30 minutes or did you just have a Mars bar and wing it what was your approach
2: um well there were no gels the, these things didn't exist uh the closest you got to isotonic is uh, I did it my first international marathon was in Poland the drink stations were every 5k and they had water and they had cold sweet tea and we knew from um, South Africa um, that in in the Comrades and the Two Oceans Ultra races that they defizzed sweet Coca-Cola and that was the isotonic drink that you had on the course or the energy drink you had on the course. There were no gels the gels were, were not invented until the 90s um, there, there was a product came out of America called Accolade um, which was a powder which you mixed up it was basically a sugary drink um, it had some electrolytes in it, and then I know the story because there's been a, there was a lot of press about it in the 90s, and early early 2000s, where doctors were realising that people were getting hyponatraemia and they were drinking too much in marathons, and they had a look at the research. And there were certain companies, Gatorade was one, because it's one of the first ones in the market, who were pushing people to drink more because they were trying to sell sugary drinks, basically. Lucasaid the same. I don't want to put them down because they all have a use. But people were beginning to think that they couldn't run unless they had these
0: these, these drinks. The reality is... So depend, it, almost becoming dependent on it. Yeah. I mean, it, it
2: changed dramatically. From the early 80s, people, uh, physiologists were saying, drink, drink, drink on marathons. Uh, now they're saying drink to thirst. And I always had the theory that, that you should drink to thirst. And you should only eat stuff when you're hungry. So the idea of you know, finishing a run and stuffing some protein down your gut um, you know, 20 minutes after um, was pretty alien to me. Uh, it wasn't available. Uh, and we've gone through an, a, a lot of technology, nutrition is very high up on the list, but a, a lot of it is you've got to look where it's coming from. And I remember getting a, uh, a thing through a fax machine not a long time ago from somebody saying, you should have more salt in your diet. One should have more salt. And a doctor who I knew said, well, just look at where the research has come from. And it came from a sock manufacturer. So you've got to look at where vested interests are as well. Um, but, but these days, there are so many good nutritionists out there, um, Joe Wicks, as everyone knows about. They produce some cookbooks, which are about good nutrition, full stop. Not just about nutrition for running or for sport, but good nutrition um, outside of what you might or might not have to do during a race or before or after. There are benefits to looking at nutrition during a race. Um, Certainly I did the carbo-loading diet, which allowed the body to learn to burn fats um, more than carbohydrate for the end of the race. That's definitely beneficial for someone who's going to be on a marathon for a long time because you haven't got enough carbohydrate. You can't take in enough carbohydrate if you're going to be out there for five hours working hard. So you've got to train the body to use fats, and that's long, slow runs. The physiology is quite simple. So there is a place for it, but generally I... My mum was a cook, she, she worked um, as an army cook when she met my dad and then she was a school cook and then she worked in a factory. So the food was, was good and wholesome food, um, not chips and all the rest of it. And when I went to university, um, I made a deliberate policy because I was training hard to always cook for myself if I could. So I always had good ingredients, cooked fresh. Uh, and, and I think it threw me in good stead and I still cook most days for myself. Um, and always look at at, at the nutritional aspects of things, long grain fibres, whole grain rice, all that kind of, nothing's changed. When you look back, the big change has been in hydration. Um, There was a feeling that people needed to drink a lot more in a marathon, and then people started dying of hyponutremia in the Boston Marathon. I think about five people died. They all thought it was heat stroke. And then when they did the research, they found it wasn't, it was water intoxication. So they stopped that, and a lot of the physiologists suddenly changed their tune about drinking, so they went from uh, from saying drink, drink, drink to drink, drink to thirst, and a friend of mine, Dr. Jonathan Williams, um, been on our training camps, he did his PhD as a sports um, doctor uh, before the 2012 Olympics, uh, he worked on the hockey, I think, at the 2012, 2012 Olympics, he's currently with a cricket team in uh, Pakistan. His research was on the on Hyping on, on on drinking. Uh, and he said a lot of people, um, like Noakes in South Africa, who originally saying, yes, you must drink, you must drink, changed his, his dialogue, his books changed to show drink drink more to thirst. So while the nutrition side has become more sophisticated in terms of we understand what is good food now, people want to cook for themselves, it's fresher, there's more recipes about a lot of stuff, um, you have to be very careful about where research is coming from, what vested interests are. But there's no doubt that in the, the breaking two thing with uh, the nutrition there, that the first time round, um, they, they felt that they'd, they'd, they needed to get more carbohydrate inside the athletes, um, but they could only drink so much. Uh, and then they reformulated those drinks, so there was a high concentration of sugar I guess, uh, I don't know the, yeah, the, all, all the theories behind it, um, but as a British doctor, Dr Jones who's at Exeter University I think, um, was behind all that uh, and they changed the drink and then lo and behold, I know they had magical shoes on as well, but um, lo and behold their, their energy levels, they didn't fade towards the end of the marathon. Now the advantage of um, an elite athlete running two hours is that they can do that almost entirely on blood sugar, on carbohydrate. They're not needing to train and build up um, fat burning because it's all over fairly quickly. Um, so they just needed nutrition uh, in terms of, of sugars at the end of the race. So they worked out a strategy. They drank X amount all the way through the race, and yeah, you know, it, it worked. So that was part of the difference between the first breaking two where they didn't do it and the second breaking two where it where it happened. So. Uh, so those those bits of nutrition, I think they work at the highest end of the sport. Simple nutrition, like learning to burn fats um, to keep your energy up, have um, been known about for a very long time. mokes in South Africa, Costille in in Britain, uh, they've known they've known about fat burning and they developed the. Uh, the uh, carb loading diets and all those things.
0: E- Even with the evolution of research and, and nutrition information and we have all this wealth of knowledge now which is great. Yeah. As you touch on there at that end of the sport, you know, it's it's when people are looking at really really fine margins like breaking 2, then everything matters, doesn't it? But f- yeah. for, for for the mass kind of, you know, marathon runner as it were, actually the basics work, don't they, if we get oh, those right and we can train consistently. You yeah. mentioned magic shoes come on, would you have ran two hours and seven had you have had some magic carbon-plated shoes on? What's your, what's your well, thoughts on this, this new wave of footwear?
2: The mathematics say, yes, I would. Um, it's as simple as that. And you can look at athletes currently wearing them. I mean, even Masters athletes who uh, I meet at running clubs and things, They've all run personal best in the last two years, and it's because of the shoes. And The amount of difference they make depends on you as a runner and your running style, your efficiency, etc. etc. Well, I was a pretty efficient runner, so I think um, I had very little wasted energy, I had a very low knee action, most of my force was behind my body. So, in terms of running efficiency, I'd say I was pretty good. So, maybe they would have had a more marginal effect with so- than with somebody who's running style like. Um, I, I don't know, it was all over the place. we were too bouncy, uh, rocking and rolling, all that kind
1: of stuff. The, the reason that I've um, not invested in some myself is because I've been running for a few months now. I'm not a runner, I just run occasionally, and I've yeah, still got yeah. my PE shoes from about 15 years ago. A pair of Everlast, um, they cost me £12 at sports soccer, and you see, I'm too rock and rolly and bouncy for these new ones, so, so the Everlast, <laughs> they're doing me, they're doing me proud.
0: If you're not
2: getting injured, keep wearing them. <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. Oh, no, don't say that, Mike. He, I've been trying to get Pete to change these shoes yeah. for, for months now, and he's just going to quote you. Well, Mike said. <laughs> that's if it, Mike said, if I'm not
1: injured... I appreciate that, Jake, yes, you may Although, you may be a professional running coach, but quite frankly, you're not Mike Grattan so <laughs> I'm true. with Mike on this. <laughs>
0: that is very true.
1: If you saw the shoes i have won
2: London in, you would not wear them now. You, you, they, they were too <laughs> cut, far too cut away and they they gave nothing back to the runner at all. They were just very lightweight. (laughs) That's all you need. (laughs) Yeah, it is.
0: Did. Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you on the show uh, and sharing your wealth of knowledge. And uh, I hope it was nice for you having a little trip down memory lane again, reliving 1983. It's just, just awesome stuff. I really do appreciate you coming on the show. Um, how's Brilliant. the rest of, well, this year, next year, looking for you with obviously 209 events? Are we going to get back out there? I know you do your training camp. One of the things you do is your training camp yeah. in Portugal, yeah. which has been on my list for a number of years now. I keep saying to Martina, my girlfriend, we must go with my I know people that come and join you on this and they love it. Yeah. Is it happening next year? Have you still got some spaces? What's going on?
2: Well, this, this year, it should have been in March. Um, the last event we did before lockdown, in fact, we were in Portugal when lockdown started. So we had two, two weeks of training camps. First week went ahead. And while we were out there, they were closing the airlines down. So we had to email everybody, refund people on week two and say, you can't come, can't get home. Um, and that was the last bit of work I did. I've been furloughed since. <laughs> uh, and this March, um, we put it up for sale in whenever November, whenever October, November, when things look like they're going to open up. Um, but then we, after Christmas, we had to say, I'm sorry, but we can't go ahead. Uh, and as it's turned out, we thought it might all be over by March, but it isn't. So uh, our next event programs, we've cancelled everything up to South Down's Half Marathon, um, which is on June the 12th, which is just before the June the 21st cut. Um, for all the distancing things. Hampshire County Council, who will be the authority we have to work with, are happy as long as if there are any COVID restrictions in place, like needing wave starts and stuff, we do it. That's fine. And then our next race after that, luckily, it will be a half marathon on the North Downs at the Denbys in, in Dorking, which is on June the 29th, the week after the lockdown is supposed to finish. So hopefully we'll be plain sailing from there. Say May the 17th, when chance, when, you, when you're able to go on holiday, then our business will start picking up again. So realistically, our next training camp will be March 2022.
0: Don't be accepting too many places. You've got to, <laughs> you got. You need to put two aside for myself uh, and Martina. You know, we definitely want to come and uh, get involved. I think... I think- Do you know something, Mike? It's just what the world needs. It's just what runners need. As soon as we're all allowed out to play again, as it were, we need that connection. You know, it's fine speaking to people on Zoom like we are now, but we want to get together in the same space, and that's what you guys provide. So we'll link the website, which is 209events.com, on the uh, official show notes page, which is runningwithjake.com forward slash podcast. Before we let you go, my friend... This is your weekly dose of running motivation. You have to be very motivated to win the 1983 London Marathon. We ask all of our guests this question. (laughs) Are you ready for this? I'm ready. What does the word motivation mean to you? It's
2: a target to work towards, uh, which keeps you going. So my target changed year on year. So it became the London Marathon. uh, And then it became running a world record, which I never did. But now it would be... Um, you know get to the point where I could enter a race you know go to a park run that would be fantastic so it's a moving feast I think motivation you need to have something in your life to look forward to uh, and and you know, running if you're a runner. Is something to look forward
1: to all the time.
0: Mike, I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking to us. Have a great rest of the week and we will speak to you soon and see you in Portugal next year. Yes, we hope so. See you there.
1: Running with Jake, the podcast, your weekly dose of running motivation, out every Wednesday. Never miss an episode by subscribing now. Do you know one thing I've noticed, Pete, recently
0: over the past few episodes? You're becoming more and more involved with the guests you're being inspired by the guests that we have this is a good sign my friend it's because you are you are further down your running journey now I know that you're making good progress and you're still getting yourself out there being consistent it's all about the running journey that you're much further down that path than you were initially and
1: this is why you're being inspired by so many of
0: our great guests
1: yeah absolutely I, I am starting to really appreciate what the guests are saying and I'm listening to them but you know as far as like training tips I, I like what Mike said because he's very old school I love that you know it's like yeah don't take too much time about tracking stuff, I don't worry about. I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, like you lot do with your watches and you flipping energy gels and all that. I couldn't be bothered with any of that. Just get out, go for a run. You know, it's like uh, you say it's a journey. You go, no, it's not a journey, mate. I'm not on a running journey. If I want to go on a journey, I'm going in a bloody car. I'm not running. Do you know what I mean, mate? You are,
0: not, you you're I'm on a not... journey. Everybody, look, everybody's on
1: a running journey. It's the end thing. We're on a jo- we're all on a journey. I'm it's a journeying running journey. nowhere. You... The only reason I'm going running is because sometimes my head will go, oh. God, oh God, oh God. And then when my head starts doing that, I go, right, I'm going to go for a run and then a run. And then rather than worrying about everything else that's going on in life, I'm just concerned about what's putting one foot in front of the other. And then when I get back home, it's not a journey because it's just a round route. Okay. It's not a journey. It's just a round route. And when I get back home, rather than my head going, oh God, oh God, oh God, my body's going, oh God, oh God. Oh, God. Oh, God. And that's why I've run. And that's it. Well, sit tight, my friend, because we're going to take
0: you to the next stop on your running journey. It is hashtag Ask Jake. (laughs) Steve sent us a message. He's suffering one or two niggles, little injuries. He's got to keep his eye on at the moment. And he wants to know if it's okay to do a long run every other weekend as opposed to every single weekend. Steve, in reality, yes, it is. You're in control of your your destiny, your running journey, my friend. And if you are having to manage injuries and niggles, and yeah, it's really a, a safe way to reduce some of that intensity by kind of going every other weekend. You do need to be mindful of the event that you are perhaps training towards, if you are training for an event, because obviously you want to make sure you're in reasonable shape to actually take part in that event. But another way of looking at things as well is rather than say, well, Uh, I'm going to run every weekend or I'm going to run every other weekend, is you could just miss the occasional long run. So you might run a uh, long uh, over two or three weekends and then miss one. And that might be enough just to reduce some of the intensity. And another thing that you could do is also, if possible, if your diary and lifestyle allows, is run your long run in the week sometimes so you may actually go 8 or 9 days between a long run rather than 14 days obviously that can be tricky for people because typically people like to do their long run on a Saturday and a Sunday but I hope that helps Steve above all stay in one piece my friend because we want to keep you running for the long term not the short term if you've got a question it's hashtag ask Jake or of course you can drop us an email at runningwithjake.com forward slash podcast. that brings us to the end of another episode of the Running With Jake podcast. a massive thank you to our guest Mike today have a super week whatever you're up to stay positive and we will be back here next week for more running motivation I'm off to put the shoes on get out there feel good time for a run
1: and then this afternoon you're flogging your t-shirts out the back of the car yeah I'm not flogging t-shirts <laughs> and I hate the word flog I hate it not flogging
0: oh and one more thing every accomplishment starts with a decision to try.